as we continue our series called Christmas Chronology. Trust that your heart is increasingly filled with joy this morning, watching all that's happened. I want to take a moment. We have a lot of guests with us because of our numerous baptisms, both here as well as upstairs. And uh, I think we've got some special guests even on our campus in Guttenberg. And so I want to just say welcome to all of our guests who are here and thankful that you're here. And uh, let's continue celebrating Christ uh, through the word this morning. I want to help set the framework, if I could, for what we're going to see this morning. I've done this with you before, so it's not new to everyone, but uh, we've seen a lot of growth, and so it might be new to you, uh, but I want, to work with, I want you to work with me on this, because here's what our culture says, and this is not wrong, it's not sinful, it's just a little short-sighted. Regarding this season of Advent and what we know as Christmas, our culture would say to you, it's the most wonderful time yeah, of the year. Yeah, you know that. And that's not wrong. It's not incorrect. It is a wonderful time. I love Christmas. You probably do as well. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it is short-sighted because this is far more than a wonderful time of the year. Here's what I say every year around no end of Thanksgiving. It's the most doctrinal time of you should sing it with me instead of laughing. You know, there are really foundational key doctrines that every pastor needs to address with his flock every Christmas because certain things just bubble up. They boil over. They surface. And you don't want to ignore them, such as um, the, the faithfulness of God over centuries bringing Jesus uh, in the fullness, the completion of time. The Trinity, the deity of Christ, core, key doctrines. But there is one that I think stands above them all. That's right. If you were to ask me and put your finger in my chest and press hard and say, Todd, is there one doctrine at Christmas that's the key Christmas doctrine? I would say yes. It's the incarnation of Christ. And this is the doctrine that Matthew addresses as he closes chapter one. So you take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter one. Let me show you in this week's message from Matthew one, how he shows us the incarnation and what it does to Joseph, all right? I wanna say to you a couple of things as we start. One is you'll see that this text will divide itself naturally into a couple of sections. And so I want to follow in that format and preach today in a couple of sections. I'll take some time to explain things doctrinally. And then I want to take some time and, and um, kind of land those or apply those to us. You can say applicationally. I want to warn you, the latter part will be longer than the first this week. And typically it's the opposite here for whatever reason. But today's a little different. I'll probably work through the doctrine aspect pretty briefly I want to spend some more time this morning in the application of the incarnation of Christ. So be aware that's coming. So why don't we just get right to work, let the word do its work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Your Bibles are open, Matthew chapter one, both here, upstairs, at our campuses. Let's get under the weight of the word and let's uh, try to understand the text first and then we'll apply the text, all right? To do that, let's read it all the way through I think it's just four verses this morning, 22 to 25. I'll read, you follow along. 
Here's what Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says to us beginning in verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here Matthew is going to bring to the forefront Isaiah chapter 7, in which here's the prophecy. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Four pretty simple verses that you can see the way they're sectioned off pretty naturally. I'll just show those to you. The first section is verses 22 and 23. So if you have your journals or in your Bible, maybe just draw like a two-column chart, maybe a, a simple two-section grid, if you would. On one side, just notice verses 22 and 23, and they really talk about the review. That's what I kind of would label these first two verses. I'll show this on the screen behind me. It'll be a real simple chart. We'll walk through it a little bit and kind of give you some things to write down. Uh, notice, first of all, that in these verses, really what he does is he prophetically reviews the narrative. You're not going to find any new information technically in this section, this first section of two verses. He really is just giving a prophetic review of what the angel told Joseph. That's why in one sense, 22 all and 23 are kind of an insert. You'll notice at the beginning of 24, it says when Joseph woke up. The end of 22, excuse me, the end of 21 is the angel talking to Joseph. And so it seems that Matthew kind of inserts for us this prophecy to make sure that we understand that what the angel told Joseph had been predicted, had been promised by Isaiah. And so he's showing us that, yes, the Holy Spirit conceived in Mary, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but this had been long promised and predicted even back as far as Isaiah. Notice that he actually reviews for us two things that the angel told Joseph and that we saw in the life of Mary. He reviews for him, first of all, that Jesus is human. This is in verse 23 when the prophecy says, the virgin will become pregnant. Remember last week, the words natural delivery? So Jesus was fully human in this way, born of a woman, came through the natural processes that way, but yet he wasn't conceived by a man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he was divine. So in your Bibles, in verse 23, by the first phrase, you should write human. And then by the second phrase where it says, she will give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel. That means God with us. You should write the word divine. So the prophecy is foreshadowing what the reality would be, that Jesus Christ would be born one who is fully human, naturally delivered, and yet fully divine, supernaturally conceived. At that moment, of course, we understand to be the Savior. That's what verse 21 mentions. Here he's called Emmanuel, which is God with us. This is a striking theological fact, church. In the weakness of a baby, God came to man. It's magnificent. 
Now, I will admit to you, that's a high and lofty concept to grasp. It's probably near impossible to get your hands around, right? Let me suggest a couple of things as we go deeper into this. First of all, there are those that say because of the incarnation, because of the theological truth that we hold to that in the incarnation, God became man, he was with us, that must deny the unity of God. He can't be one then because there's a second person of the Trinity, so he must be more than one. That's what some would say. It's not true. God is one. But some would say, well, it also then denies the Trinity. God can't be three if he's one. He can't be three persons in one being. But that's not true. Here's why. Jesus actually refuted both of those. Jesus said in, uh, I think it's uh, the Gospels, he would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see how that points to the unity of God? even though it's expressed in two persons, the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. He also prayed in John 17 that those who follow him, Jesus would say that they would be one just as you and I are one. So Jesus was fully aware and taught that there's unity in the Godhead and yet we know there is Trinity in the Godhead because Jesus was real flesh and blood John, again, would say in his first epistle that we saw him, we watched him, we touched him, we beheld him. So there was a real person. There's an old, old heresy that says that Jesus wasn't actually a real person. He was just a manifestation. He was a figment of maybe what you thought you were seeing. It's kind of out there. That's false as well. The incarnation doesn't violate either the unity or the Trinity of God. Here's what I think. I think it makes both visible. In Jesus, we see God, the unity of God and the Trinity of God. John would say this to us. He was probably the one who spoke most about the incarnation. He would say this to us that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. You see, the word incarnation actually means enfleshing. It's a uh, word that simply means that God took on skin and bone and lived among mankind. Yes, John says he, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us. This is a very important doctrine. It has great eternal weight to it. So much so that if you don't believe in the incarnation which is that God became man in the person of Jesus. The eternal Christ took on flesh and Joseph named him Jesus. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Say, Todd, can you back up that statement? I'll go to John once again, his first epistle. He says, if anyone denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's not of God. So do you see why this is a key, I would say, paramount, top-of-the-line doctrine at Christmas? The incarnation. Such a beautiful, magnificent doctrine. Not easily graspable, but I would say eternally important. Amen, church? As you think about this during the Advent season, and as perhaps I've whet your appetite for it, I trust that you want more 
about it and you're kind of digging into it, here's a, a really good book I want to recommend. It's called The First Days of Jesus. Andreas Kostenberger, Alexander Stewart wrote this. They also wrote a companion volume called The Final Days of Jesus. And I just want to highly recommend both. This one here, especially during this season, I'm in the middle of reading it currently, and it's not just theological. It's also historical, and it's also devotional. So if you're looking for a really fantastic read during this Advent season about the most important doctrine in this season, I'd highly, highly encourage you to pick up the first days of Jesus. I'm enjoying it, and I trust that you will as well. Let's notice the second section in this text, can we? We see verses 22 and 23. It's really a review of who Jesus is as the fully human, fully divine Son of God, God among us, Emmanuel. Notice verse 24, and if I can just give you this preface, I think this is where the entire chapter culminates. If you're looking for a place in which the entire chapter kind of erupts with, what do we do now? This is it. Only two verses, but this is where conviction starts. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, here's how the CSB writes it for us. In fact, if you have that or other translation, just read this next phrase with me to the end of verse 24. He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. Isn't that amazing? He married her. That's in direct obedience to verse 20. Do you remember what the Holy Spirit said? Look at it with me. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So in the dream, the angel said, you're thinking about putting her away secretly because you think there's another man involved. But no, it's not a man, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the second person of the Trinity in her womb, about to be born, marry her. And what does Joseph do? Marry her. Like, it wasn't like he had tried to negotiate. He didn't consult with a group of friends in his accountability group. He didn't ask if, you know, do you think this was the Lord? I mean, he woke up, he obeyed. He obeyed twice, in fact. Verse 25 says that he named him Jesus. This is in direct obedience to verse 21. Do you see it in verse 21? You are to name him Jesus. Now, the middle part where it says he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, that's not recorded in Scripture as a command of the angel as far as we know. This was Joseph's choice for whatever reason. But on these other two accounts, they are in direct obedience to what the angel of the Lord has said. Marry her and name him Jesus. And I love the way the chapter ends. It simply says to us, when Joseph woke up, he did it. Like, don't you love it when people obey like that? They're just like, oh, this is clear cut. It's simple. It's to the point. It's not hard. I'll just do it. Um, this is kind of like Joseph's Nike moment, you know, just, just do it, right? And so he does. And so the result, now watch this, the result of the incarnation in Joseph's life, the result of realizing, wow, what my wife is bearing is God among us is prompt obedience. In other words, the who Jesus was, led to what Joseph would do. So this is really the, the, the two sections of the text. And I do think the majority of the chapter is establishing the identity of Jesus genealogically and then also 
um, geographically, even biologically, but it closes with one simple two-verse result. In light of who he is, here's what Joseph did. He obeyed. Am I the only guy in the room thinking this right now? Like, man, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> you kind of see, you're like, well, it should be, but sometimes it's not. But I love Joseph, don't you? When he saw who Jesus was, he had only one response. I'm gonna do what God says. And so therein really lies, I think, the real mountain we're climbing through the text this morning, that the incarnation moves us to action. Or let's put it in even a more simple way, in a single sentence. Since the incarnation is this week's take-home treasure, uh, let's put it like this, that the identity of Jesus fuels our obedience to Jesus. You see, I'm gonna go back to the chart for a moment and show you something. In that simple two-column table, you may think those two columns are equal, but they're not. The first one always feeds the second one. The who always fuels the what. Every time. Long-term, in the large journey of life, the what, the action, the obedience only comes when there's relationship. So that helps us understand more about the take-home treasure for this week. The identity of Jesus, the who, it fuels obedience to Jesus, the what? The incarnation, the action. So as we unpack this applicationally, can we just, before we do, say it together, all of us in the room, can we just say this take-home treasure regarding the incarnation together? The identity of Jesus fuels my obedience to Jesus. You could say it in some other ways as well, even shorter ways. Here's four other options. Maybe jot these down, plant them in your memory. Incarnation motivates action or belief drives behavior. Knowing feeds doing. Who leads to what? All of those kind of are, are pointed to the very same thing, that the identity of Jesus, when you fully and truly grasp it, will fuel your obedience to Jesus. And so regardless of how you say it, here's what's poignant in this passage. It's the clear connection between Joseph's realization of who this baby is and his response now of what he must do. And the answer to that is obey. Let's make this painfully personal, can we? And can we not leave the text to apply, but can we from the text apply this principle? I want to spend the rest of our time just with applicational exhortation to you. 
I'll be frank with you, it may sting at times. It stung me this week. But as one of your pastors, on behalf of other pastors, we want to exhort you to obedience because that is what we do when we see Jesus as who he really is, king. He's God. I'd remind you, Matthew opens with, a th with establishing Jesus as king, Matthew 1 and 2. It ends in Matthew 28 with Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me. So when you think about areas in your life where you need to obey, Jesus is not just like a big brother giving you advice. He's not like your consult, just, you know, kind of in the corner when you need him. He's not your 911 rescue call. He's not your first responder if you have an emergency. Jesus is God in the flesh, the eternal Christ, the ruler of the universe by whom every thing holds together. What's he asking you to do? What step of obedience is he wanting you to take next? You see, that's really the question we have to ask ourselves at the end of Matthew 1 and is this, what step of increasing obedience do I need to take today in light of who Jesus is? And the answer, of course, to the question is God with us. That's who Jesus is. So what is my step of increasing obedience? Notice how I worded that. I want to pause here before we list some applicational avenues and just think about this question. Because if there isn't some type of progressive directional obedience in your life, if there's not an increasing level of wanting to obey God and actually obeying God, it takes time. All of us are at different uh, paces. I realize that. But the Bible doesn't teach the Bible doesn't show a picture of a follower of Christ without some level of increasing obedience. Why? Because they know who Jesus is. They've met Jesus. They've been saved by God. God has changed them on the inside first, and it shows up progressively, incrementally on the outside through levels and in, in, in increasing obedience. It's just a theological reality that those who belong to God follow him increasingly, often slow, but it does happen, sometimes fast. And so I think the wrestling point here to begin our application is to ask you this, is this even occurring in your life? Is there a pattern of saying yes to Jesus when he reveals to you next steps of obedience? Or is it always a no without a problem? If that's your case, I want to be very polite to you, but I want to be very plain with you. You don't have an obedience issue. You have a relationship issue. You may not really know Jesus. You don't have a following Christ issue. You have a worshiping Christ issue. You may not even know and love Jesus and adore him. 
I talk more about this on the Extra Point podcast Tuesday, but just give you a little teaser. What we're talking about here is really the issue of appetites and affections. And what causes action when we realize Jesus is who he said he is, he's king, he's God among us, the incarnation leads to obedient action because this king changes us on the inside and gives us new desires and new appetites. First Peter would call this a divine nature. It is in conflict with your old nature. So it is a battle. It is a war. Could somebody say amen? There is struggle. There is conflict. No one's denying that. My question to you is, is there a struggle? And if the disobedience is your just natural go-to without a thought, if obedience is never happening, but you keep saying, I'm a Christian, I belong to God, I know Jesus, I would beg to differ. That's not the Bible's portrait of a Christian. That's not the pattern of someone who knows the Lord. And so I'm just kind of bringing you this pretty stern Merry Christmas gift. <laughs> like in this season, when we're celebrating who Jesus is, God among us, King, do you really know him? You may say, well, how can I find out? Do you live like Joseph? Do you just obey what Jesus says? Admittedly, that's a process. It's incremental. We trip and fall. I, I'm aware of all that. What doesn't happen is someone who never obeys and who gives no thought to Jesus, who disregards his, his, um, who he is and, and his identity. And if his identity has never affected your actions, you would serve yourself well this holiday season to have a long talk with the person in the mirror and ask yourself, am I really a Christian? With that kind of as our groundwork, our runway to application, can I just give you some ways to apply this here in our body? Like when you see who Jesus is, ways to live that out. These, this is not an, an exhaustive list. It's a sampling. There are actual ways you can do it, so they're not made up, but they're not everything you can do or maybe not everything you should do. And they're not just my ideas. I sat with some of our staff this week and I said, hey, tell me some ways that, that our people, the folks who sit in those chairs week after week in our small groups, what are things they could do as a next step of obedience? Where are some of our people at? And so I got input from some of our staff. Um, I kind of made some um, lists myself. And so I just want to walk you through a few ways that perhaps you could obey God today and followings. All right? I want to help you obey. Some of these were convicting to me. Perhaps some will be convicting to you. This will, be, this will be the longer portion of our message, and we'll try to run through it quickly, but I don't want to be too quick. I want this to land on us well. Some of it will be sticky and tense. Some will be humorous. Let's start, shall we? I think one of the first ways to obey, once you know who Jesus is, is to get baptized. We saw it this morning, right? In fact, it's perhaps the most fundamentally biblical way to show people you believe Jesus is Lord 
that he died on the cross and that he was raised from the dead. It's the clearest way to model that you have followed Romans 10, 9, and 10. It's to be baptized. So just as Jesus was buried and raised again, you follow in that pattern and you identify with who he is. You're buried in the waters of baptism. You're raised to life. So you're identifying. And by the way, the Bible only teaches one method of baptism. It's conversion, then immersion. It's always immersion after conversion. There's no other biblical pattern of any type in the Bible regarding baptism. So maybe you're here and you're like, I watched all those folks getting baptized. I'm a believer and I've never yet obeyed. Get baptized. I would enroll in our baptism class and at our next date, I would just say, I'm getting baptized. Here's what I love about what you saw this morning and what you see in every baptism. A lot of those folks don't like speaking in public. You could actually see it on the video, couldn't you? And you're only hearing snippets, by the way. There's been long conversations with parents and children between those who are witnessing to some of our campus collective students or adults. You're only getting us a snippet of their story. But you can even sense it in the snippet that sometimes it's just hard to, they're nervous, they're not sure what to say, they don't like being the, the cameras on them. Some of those folks don't like getting wet in public. I don't blame them. Like there's a lot about that that's hard. And yet what do they do? They say, Jesus matters more, I'll get baptized. I love that, don't you? He's king. He calls the shots and he's commanded his followers to identify with him in baptism. And I love when folks say, count me in, I'll do it. So maybe your next step is to obey in baptism. Of course, maybe it's even one that's more fundamental than that, and that is to believe so you can get baptized. You know, I remember the day when I realized that believing was not a suggestion. And, and that's what the American church has often communicated. Some of our invitations and some of our response calls, we say, we kind of, like, would, would you believe in Christ? And almost like, do us a favor. And we kind of give it as an option. Did you know the Bible actually commands all people everywhere to repent? I'm praying for more pastors, and I'm not the greatest one at it, but I am committed to giving the call to believe as often as I can without apology. Because the Bible commands all men and women everywhere to repent, to stop trusting their own things to save them and turn to Jesus and trust him alone to save them through his death and resurrection. Only in that is their forgiveness. He's the only humanly, divinely one able to save. Trust Jesus and God calls us to do that. So if anyone here is wondering, should I trust Jesus or not? Yes, trust Jesus today. It's a great first step of obedience to your creator. You know, when we believe, that's when God forgives us. We experience forgiveness. We receive it. Perhaps your civil obedience today is to actually extend forgiveness. Maybe you're a believer. You've been baptized. But you cannot let go of that one hurt that happened 12 years ago. I'm not denying that it was a hurt. I'm not trying to disagree with you that there was a violation or an offense. I, I don't even know what it was. All I know is for 12 years, eight years, a decade, six months, 
you've been stunted in your spiritual growth because you cannot let go. You've got bitterness, rot, and decay. And it's eating away at you. You're drinking the poison of your own animosity and anger and rage and fury. And it's destroying you spiritually. Jesus calls on his people to be a forgiving people. It's not easy, but it's right. And he can call on us to do that because when he was being crucified, one of the last things he said was this, Father, say it with me, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. It was in the middle of his death that he extended forgiveness. So without trying to show disregard to your specific situation and not trying to unintentionally minimize it, I wanna call upon anyone in this room, upstairs, downstairs, our campuses, who is harboring bitterness to obey Jesus by forgiving. You know, forgiveness means, in the most technical sense, releasing the right to get even. Have you? Forgiving is an act of obedience, and when we realize it's Jesus calling us to forgive, we will. Here's another thing we can do to obey Jesus, be generous. And ironically, I found that often those who are unwilling to forgive are often unwilling to give. And I don't just mean finances, I mean even with our time, um, resources. It's like when you become close-fisted with granting forgiveness, you become close-fisted with everything else kind of Scrooge-like, you know? You want paid back. And so you just kind of start closing down and shutting in. Now, before I share more about generosity, can I just first of all thank you for being generous? I think the Lord has really worked in our church over the last five to six years and made us a much more generous people. I see it in a number of ways. So I first of all want to say thank you for your generosity. I'm not going to beat you up over a lack of it. That's not my goal today. I think we can be more generous, but can I just first of all affirm and thank you. And let me just share with you some ways that we've seen God abundantly pour out his favor as we've become more generous, as we've adopted his mindset. Because you see, understand this church, generosity is a missional act. It's a missional mindset. I'll prove it to you. For God so loved the world that he, his only one of a kind son, so that whoever believes in him would never perish but have eternal life. The mission of God is to save his people from their sins through Jesus. So what did he first do? Gave Jesus. Generosity is a missional mindset, a missional act whether it's our time, our money, and, and, and it could be a number of things. So all of you have been so gracious, or I should say maybe most of us have been gracious, right? With our time, our money, our space, our stuff, even our kids, you just have a very loose hand with those, hallelujah. That's missional living. 
as I think about the ways you've been missional, I want to first of all let you know there's probably five or six right now, maybe more, but I can count five or six either families or entities, individuals in our missions pipeline who are willing to be sent. You know, God has really increased our sending culture the last five to six years. It just kind of blankets us well. You guys have, have adopted and embraced multiplying just so beautifully. I'm so humbled by your willingness to just keep emptying seeds and send people and plant campuses. And so as I think about that, I just uh, think about the five or six right now that we know of by name who have said, we're somewhere in the missions pipeline. I don't know if they'll all go or not, but of all the stats I'm gonna share with you, that's the one that excites me the most because it represents the heart of a people who says, I'll give up probably things that hold the dearest, like where you live and who you live near, your family, your friends, what you've known. I'll give all that up. If you'll send me well, I'll go to the least reached areas. I'll spend 15, 20 years and we'll see if we can get a set of believers there who have planted a church. And I'll come back and, and they're saying, I'm willing to give up that two decade part of my life, not throw it away, not waste it, but I'm gonna give it up for what's more important. Jesus is calling, he's king, what he says we'll do. Those people are right in here among us. And you guys have adopted the mentality, like we'll send them well. So I just wanna thank you, first of all, for having a missional mindset and who we send and how we send. I think about our various campus opportunities. Like right now, this afternoon, there's a meeting for the Granger campus. There's an interest group. Their small group's gonna start meeting. And Lord willing, next fall, we'll plant a campus in Granger. Right now, there's four couples who have signed on and said we're in. That doesn't include any folks, anyone that we don't know about living in Granger. We want that to multiply to two small groups, then we'll set a service date. You'll meet them next January. But I love the fact that there's traction already for what's happening in Granger in our body. Carlisle's been uh, tracking up and to the right. We love what's happening there. Uh, Guttenberg, now they're almost the double digits in Rita's living room. Isn't that fantastic? Love what's happening there. It's a long road, but we're just gonna stay faithful and see what God does in providing local leadership there. We're committed to that situation the best we can, and we're gonna see how that unfolds. I'm still praying for someone to show up and say, I'll move to Guttenberg. I'd love to see that happen. So there's a lot of things on the radar regarding our deaf community. God's adding to their cadre of believers, our Hispanic emphasis, which right now is probably almost in the background, but we're starting a Spanish-speaking only small group this January which we hope will kind of be the seedbed for a Spanish or Hispanic speaking campus or service. We hope to put it right next door in one of these plazas so they can access our childcare at our service times and yet have a first generation speaking, uh, Spanish speaking service. Lots going on here. And yet all of that, when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, let's go for it. And I love your missional mindset and your heart to see God continue to multiply I watch our small groups utilize the live streaming venue. And right now there's some up there who are meeting. They've been assigned this month. Some of you are back down here because your month's over. And yet there are people among us who go, not because they're assigned. They're like, Todd, I actually like it up there better. It's a little smaller. Kind of reminds me of my church growing up. Uh, you know, it's a little more comfortable. I got three kids and they're kind of rowdy. And so they got a table they can kind of draw at. And, you know, no offense, Todd, but we like it better up there. I mean, it's some good things happening in regards to how we're trying to figure out our space issues. So I love our small groups and how they're just willing to be generous with where they meet. All of that together is working your parking offsite. We've got 55 new spots open today, and yet you're willing to say, we don't need those. We'll let our community have those. I heard from several folks this week. 
They said, hey, the lot's open and we're not parking there. I said, fantastic, thank you, right? They're gonna continue to park off site. All of that's working, here's why. If you were to take this same time frame this year from Labor Day to this week, that's about 15 weeks, and compare it to 15 week time period last year, same 15 weeks last year, these 15 weeks this year, you'll find that our church has grown by about 10%. That's not a huge amount, but it's far ahead of the national average of church growth. People see room, they see seats, you know there's room to invite, and so the community shows up. In a growing city, that matters. And I love your heart to say, Todd, whatever we can do, we'll adjust, we'll, we'll be assigned, we'll go, we'll park, because people matter. It's a missional, generosity is missional. Are you catching this? And so thank you for just having a missional mindset about our growth here. It's been true even financially. We've seen our giving increase this year by about 18, 19%. That's staggering. That's incredible. Now, we are still 4% under the budget. How'd that happen, Todd? Because last year, the elders and the finance team agreed together, we needed, we needed a significant increase in the budget for what's coming. So they raised the budget 23%, I believe it was. And yet, I love the men in that room because they were able to say, our people, They'll respond. They love the mission of God, and you have. So thank you. Let's continue to do so. But thank you for your missional mindset in so many areas. Now, I want to just add one more thing to this area of generosity. Here's something I've come to believe, and I think it's true. There may be exceptions, but generally speaking, this will hold true. That a missional church with missional people, it does have numerical consequences, and we've seen that happen here, but it also has logistical consequences. In other words, you have space issues, you have, uh, you know, volunteer issues. Those things happen. And what I've discovered is that when both of those meet together, you have to make hard decisions about, okay, what are we going to do now? We've, we've, and here's, what I, here's what I'm saying. I think that typically missional mindset, churches and people, they will um, outpace their adjustments and they'll outgrow their spaces. See, this is where we are right now. We're making adjustment after adjustment best we can, and we should. We should use every square inch, every square minute, so to speak, to try to stay together on mission. We're also looking at you know, the campuses and church plants and extra venues, but at some point, if we're really missional, I think in a growing city, what happens is this. You outpace your adjustments, and you outgrow your space. So I wouldn't be surprised at some point if we have to say, okay, this building, this part of the warehouse, this tin structure, it's gotta come down. How can we build something a little larger because we've outpaced our adjustments, we've outgrown our spaces. I don't know when that is, but just be aware, all those are things that missional people wrestle with. And here's why I'm okay wrestling with those, because we're wrestling with them from a missional point of view. We've been generous with our outreach, with our love, with the message, with our people. And so when others show up and they keep showing up, we gotta figure out what do we do next? I love wrestling with those from a missional mindset, not from a cultural viewpoint or a brand viewpoint or an image viewpoint, don't you? I could care less what the culture thinks generally, but I care a lot what God thinks. That's where I want our church to be so that we make decisions in these moments on the right foundation. What is best for the mission that God has us on? Amen, church? And you've proven 
to be a generous people in regards to missional living. So let's continue that and let's let our decisions be driven by the mission of God, whether it's our finances, our time, our children, our space, our stuff. May the mission of God drive our obedience. Just a few more elements for you, then we'll be done. Speaking of serving, there are ways you can serve here. That's a good way to obey Jesus. That's a good first step. In fact, can I give you two or three areas that are easy on-ramps? About 60-something percent of our church serves on a regular basis. So that means there's about 40%, 30 to 40% that don't. Here's some easy on-ramps for you. Um, First impressions, like with the parking lot or the greeter ministry or ushering, prepping communion, passing communion out, uh, maintenance, landscaping, snow removal. Those are all, you know, make a phone call, get you on a schedule. It's pretty simple. Other places are a little harder because we want to know about your past and working with kids and children. There's some time frames. We want to watch you in church a bit and there's applications. That makes sense. But there's some easy on-ramps. So if you're not serving, just take advantage of some of those on-ramps and let's get involved. It's a great step of obedience. Read your Bible and pray every day. That's a great step of obedience. God calls us to be in his word, to have times of personal worship. Is that happening in your life? If not, commit to that. Say, Lord, I want to obey by being in your word and praying every single day. We want to be a church whose members are addicted to scripture. Amen. And the word does the work and the word is our foundation. So are you in the word? A few more. Treat your spouse right. I'm kind of getting really practical here, kind of personal even, right? More like individual habits. Like just stop using sarcasm. Quit the cutting words. Like quit quit trying to communicate in code, you know, and and getting a point across that also has an edge to it. Like just stop all that. Commit to Ephesians 4 language that you're going to build each other up and you're going to speak words that are good in the moment. Like if we just all committed to that, we'd have homes that are radically different. So just treat your spouse right. Can I speak to the men for a moment? I won't address the women. I'm not a woman. I'm just going to go for the men here, okay? Men, the best thing you can do for your spouse is to develop a lifestyle of sacrifice for her. And here's the best way to start that. Just every day, ask your wife this question. What can I do to serve you today? I'll be frank with you. Most days, she probably won't have an answer. So you're good there, right? Not a whole lot of adjustments to do. But on days she does, make sure you get it done first. Find a way to make that happen. You'll find that your marriage will blossom in ways you never imagined. Just serve your wife Love your wife like Christ loved the church. And you can do that by asking this question, how can I, how can I serve you today? If, if, if the first time you ask that she faints, just give her time to come to and you can continue the conversation. But just treat your spouse right. That's how we can obey Jesus. Here, here's another one that's real practical. Eliminate hidden habits. We could even just singularize this and say eliminate a hidden habit. Sometimes people have more than one. Men sometimes, you know, are secretly engaged in pornography. They're clicking at odd hours. Their phone is not accessible. I would never recommend a couple not have, not share every password. Now, there are work situations where you can't, but I'm not speaking of that. But just personal, if you've got passwords your spouse doesn't know about, that's a bad sign. Man, 
Open transparency with your spouse. No hidden habits. Eliminate them. It may be something like spending, substance abuse, alcohol. It could be a number of things. But why live in the dark and hide and pretend to be something you're not? Just come clean and eliminate the habits that you're hiding. It's way more healthy to walk in the light as he is in the light because then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. One more for you. The one that got me, meet your neighbors. I usually do meet our neighbors relatively quick, but we've had like three or four new neighbors to our right in the last, I think, three or four years. And just this week, I realized I don't know my neighbors' names to my right. I still don't, in in all honesty. I'm, I'm confessing to you. I've got to do that this week. I've got to meet my neighbors to the right, get their names, because they matter to God. I don't know where they are spiritually, but I should know. I need to know. I want to know. So these are just a sampling. It's a small, customized list for for the faith family here of things you could do starting today and this week to actually obey Jesus. And if you're saying, why should I, Todd? Because Jesus calls us to. And the true believer... The genuine Christian, when they hear that, their heart is prompted to say, yes, that's right, I want to obey. You have that moment like, oh, I don't want want to displease Jesus. I love Jesus. And you get back to the identity factor. The who matters to you. And so you're going to pursue the what. If the moment you hear that Jesus calls us to, you're like, I don't care. But you keep coming to church, playing the game, trying to impress people, get the image, you know, kind of wear the brand. But you're far from God. You don't even know God through Jesus. I would try to forget all of these except the second one. And I would call you to truly repent of pride and sin and trust Jesus as your only way to be saved. Let him give you a whole new nature, a whole set of appetites that you'll find will drive all of your obedience. Come to know the who, and he'll take care of the what. You see, that's what the incarnation does. It compels us to action. Don't believe me? Just ask Joseph. Joseph.